Hello again. These bonus podcasts will basically act like my footnotes. I, I did actually have footnotes on the Word doc of my script for the episode, so this this is basically literally my footnotes. I could have just stopped at sticking sources in the show notes of each main podcast episode, but I know from my own experience that people don't really look at the show notes, um, and the people who did this work deserve more credit than that uh, that that kind of afterthought. Um, this is very much a behind the curtain kind of podcast, so don't feel like you have to listen to it if you just want to listen to the main show. I think it'll work well if I give these a bit of structure. I will talk about the sources that I used, the sources that I wish I could have used, because with libraries closed at the moment, I'm relying on what I can find freely available online pretty much. And then things I researched that I wish I could have developed further or even mentioned things that I didn't mention in the main podcast at all that I found during the research and really want to mention somewhere. So the shout out to the things I used. Although I didn't use it much in the eventual episode, I owe a big debt to Lisa Yenkel's article, the FA's ban on women's football 1921 in the contemporary press, a historical discourse analysis in sport in history uh, that actually came out earlier this year. It was a a really great summary of the responses in the English press to the ban, and it was exactly what I wanted to read about this topic. I think it was actually my entry point to reading about this topic, or doing the research to this topic, um, and then it, it just led me down different avenues to investigate. A lot of the stuff about female football fans and indeed the Lothian lasses comes from work by Rob Lewis. Two articles, Are Lady Specialists at Pikes Lane, Female Spectators in Early English Professional Football, 1880 to 1914, and The Female Football Spectator in England, 1870 to 1914, A Flanners Made Visible. I supplemented this work in part with looking up the Lothian lasses in the British newspaper archive, uh, which you can get a subscription to look up as many articles as you want through British newspaper history. For It's about 70 or £80 pounds a year, which I'm fortunate that I've got that money available to spend on a newspaper archive. Some useful background information came from Jean Williams's Inequality Too Far, Historical and Contemporary Perspectives of Gender Inequality in British and International Football from 2006. I'll also confess to using pages from FIFA's website and Wikipedia for some general football history, as well as confirming basic information about Helen Matthews and Mary Hudson. Alethea Mellings, Plucky Lass's Pea Soup and Politics, the role of ladies football during the 1921 miners' lockout in Wigan and Lee, was also useful, not just on that subject, but on some general background as well. And I think of, of all the things that I read, it was the most fascinating thing it's basically about the the miners lockout in 1921 uh, for obviously and the women's football that was played during that period and pea soup they were called pea soup matches because pea soup was one of the things that was served to them but um when you think of women's football in this period it's often the dickers ladies that get mentioned and i think that Alethea Melling's work in this article is is a really interesting counterpoint to that, the kind of very other end of the women's football scale. I also got some background 
information to from Jessica Macbeth's The Development of Women's Football in Scotland. It's interesting having read these works that were written from the turn of this century up until the present day, because the sources available to professional historians about women's football have really grown in that time. There's an episode of the Sport in History podcast by the British Society of Sport History recorded last year with Jean Williams, where she talks about how someone should probably take her seminal works on the women's game and almost completely rewrite them, such as the new wealth of information that there is to work from. In her 2006 article that I just mentioned, for example, she had the first recorded women's football match outside of an educational setting as being in 1888. It feels like another sign of how outside the establishment women's football still is that even the authoritative histories of it just 15 years ago hadn't uncovered that first match. And maybe there was even one before the 1881 one that we know about now. So, yeah. There's a bunch of stuff that I wish I'd had the chance of read that I didn't either because it wasn't available to me or because I'm doing this around a day job and it's the thing that I'm doing for fun and I just didn't have the time. Um, I'm aware that I didn't talk much about either the Ditkers Ladies or the British Ladies Football Club and the main reason for that is that these teams are fairly well covered and I wasn't able to find any of the books on them online. There are two in particular on Ditka's Ladies that I wish I'd been able to read. Um, Gail Newsham's In a League of Their Own, The Ditka Ladies, 1917-1965, and Barbara Jacobs' book, The Ditka's Ladies. Tim Tate's book on the history of women's football is another that I wish I'd had the chance to or the time to flick through, as well as all of the works that I haven't already mentioned or used that Jean Williams's review of that book cites. I will put a link to that review in the show notes, um, despite having mentioned previously how nobody reads the things in the show notes, but there are, there are too many things that are mentioned in that, in that review to mention here. There'll also undoubtedly be things I've missed, although I feel pretty confident that on the major landmarks, hit them or been brief because I knew that I hadn't done enough reading to dwell on them. Like with, like with not having spent more time on the Ditkers ladies, I think I took the view that if I wasn't able to be thorough about it, then it was better to gloss over it than to perhaps be brief, work solely off Wikipedia and get something wrong. As for the things I wish I'd had the chance to develop or mentioned and didn't, I mentioned in the main podcast that I could do a whole pod about the Lothian lasses, and I probably could, I really probably could. I find it fascinating, based against the general knowledge of women and football, that there were two female football reporters in the 1890s who were not only... I guess the assumption, if you said that there were two women football reporters in the 1890s, the assumption would be that they were being kind of patronizingly allowed to be published but it, it seems like they were a really big deal in their local area it it really seems like the local newspapers saw their reporting as a draw to their paper and that they were known by people who were attending these matches um rob lewis's two articles that talk about them are really interesting and they mentioned some of the kind of 19th century put-downs that the Lothian lasses had for annoying spectators around them at the time, which, yeah, I, I maybe at some point I will do a full podcast just on them. 
There was also a female correspondent for a British ladies football club match in the 1890s for the Manchester Guardian, the paper that is now just called The Guardian. It seems too tempting to believe that this was one of the Lothian lasses, given that it was a female football journalist and it was in the 1890s and she was writing for a paper based in the Northwest. All of that would be such a coincidence for it to be one of the Lothian lasses and I'm just going to assume that it wasn't and that they were separate female football journalists. I think that's probably the safest thing to assume, but who knows. I could have and perhaps should have spent more time on Helen Graham Matthews. As well as setting up the Scottish side of the 1880s, she was also involved in the British Ladies Football Club and was actually one of the few players praised by the press in the 1890s for the quality of her play. She was a goalkeeper and by that point in the 1890s she'd have been playing for around 15 years, so I guess it's no surprise that she looked perhaps markedly better than the others around her on the pitch who may not have played as much. There is a class element that I think would be a really interesting area of study if more sources were available or I had more time to do the reading into it and also generally had a better grounding in kind of class theory and class politics of the time. In the, the Alethea Melling Plucky Lasses article, one of the people she spoke to said that women playing football would have been seen as common. Uh, and the British Ladies Football Club was also quite a middle class team. And their president was Lady Florence Dixie. And so, yeah, there, there's just, it feels like there is a class thing going on there. There's also a class element in that women taking gate receipts to pay their own expenses was also kind of a low level professionalism which may have been yet another thing for middle or upper class onlookers to be disapproving of, given that the middle and upper classes preferred amateurism. That was their kind of idealised perception of sport. And there was some dismissiveness of professionalism as being kind of a a corruption of sport, maybe too strong, but in that kind of direction. I could have done a whole podcast as well, expanding on Yenkel's article about the press reaction to the 1921 ban to the press's reaction to women's football in the period more generally. I haven't done a a thorough enough amount of research to know what proportion of the coverage was negative and what proportion was positive and what was just neutral. And I'm not sure how much good it would do if I had decided to spend a whole podcast just going over the negative stuff. While some of it is amusing hearing the kind of bizarre 19th century sexist spectrum. It's also very disheartening to spend too much time in it. Uh, And yeah, I wasn't sure what balance to strike when I, when I wrote the bit of the script about the 1881 international match. I figured that given that it was the first international match that was recorded, I should be more thorough in how much of the coverage that I, um, that I, that I reported, uh, or that I put into the episode. But I'm aware that it can just get a bit relentless to kind of parade a bunch of sexist, sexist views past people. 
As a counterpoint to that, though, I want to read out the first half of the report on a Dick Kerr's match from 1921, taken from the Leeds Mercury. About 15,000 people watched the famous Dick Kerr's ladies team play Hayes Ladies of Bradford at Elland Road on Saturday. It will be remembered that Dick Kerr's ladies team have already raised over £47,000 for charity and during last season held the unique record of having played 59 matches, won 58 and drawn one. An interesting newcomer to the team is Mademoiselle Carmen Ponies, a French girl who played left halfback. I wanted to mention this not only for the amazing figures, but the fairly level tone of reporting and that the interest in the team extended to mentioning a new player who joined the side. It, it kind of reads like modern, well, not modern, but just normal football reporting with that kind of element of transfer intrigue added into the mix with Mademoiselle Carmen Ponies playing at left halfback. The very last thing that I want to mention is something that I hope came across in the main episode. And if it didn't, then I want to reiterate it, which is that women have always played football. They've always been interested in football. They've always watched football. They've always written about football. They've always been involved in the game for as long as the game has existed. And it makes perfect sense for them to have been because they'll have grown up alongside boys and young men. And if boys and young men were playing football, then of course, girls and young women will have been as well. Even if society shooed most of them away from it, then there will still have been some who will have joined in kicking a ball about and having fun. And I don't know why, I don't quite know why that is something that I wanted to pick out as a strand. But I think that given the relative meteoric rise of women's football in the past in the past just over a decade in England at least and that's relative to where it was kind of in the in the early 2000s given that rise it feels it feels kind of as astonishing that a women's team was playing 67 matches in a year turning down invitations from MPs and Lord Mayors, raising tens of thousands of pounds for charity, encouraging women across the country to play football. And not only that, but that they had been preceded a generation earlier by teams that had been doing the same. And those teams had been watched by women, had been reported on by women, and that women had watched men's football and enjoyed men's football and had written about men's football and that there was this kind of yes small but still an ecosystem of women involved in football and I know that there are a lot of people who make women feel like they are excluded from the sport and I guess I just wanted to highlight that women's place has always been within football women have always been here 